I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Carl Safina, is a world-renowned ecologist and conservationist, award-winning writer and professor, political activist, and visionary. He has won numerous awards for his work, including the MacArthur Genius Prize and National Science Foundation Fellowships. Audubon Magazine names Carl Safina among its 100 notable conservationists of the 20th century. Utney Reader listed him among 25 visionaries changing the world. His lyrically inspirational writing has appeared in major newspapers and magazines, and his many books include the New York Times bestseller, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. He hosted the PBS series, Saving the Ocean, and is founding president of the not-for-profit Safina Center. His most recent TED Talk received a million views in its first month. His latest book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, is the subject of today's interview. Carl, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to be with you. First of all, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm honored and humbled to have this opportunity for this conversation. And in your latest book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, you weave together an intimate, beautifully articulated, and heartwarming portrait of an interspecies relationship between you and Alfie the Screech Owl with philosophical explorations of what it means to be human, connected to and reverential toward nature, rather than in a stance of opposition and exploitation. Clearly, your life's work has succeeded in helping to mobilize people who, like you, are alarmed by the direction the world is going in, just as clearly the world needs much more of that mobilization. So before we launch into all that, tell us first how you hone the ability to pay close attention to, communicate with, and deeply appreciate the natural world, starting, I think, with the birds and fish of your childhood in Brooklyn. Yeah, I don't know exactly how to answer that question really directly. How did I hone the ability? I've just always been fascinated by, and I have a lot of experience watching and interacting with non-human animals. When I was a very small boy, I had a flock of homing pigeons that I raised. I got into falconry when I was in my adolescence. I studied birds of prey and worked on some conservation projects, did a lot of bird banding. For about 10 years, I mostly made a living studying the behavior of seabirds. And by the end of all of that, you're pretty good at it if I was doing it professionally. So I was just professionally an observer of nature and doing it mostly as a scientist and mostly writing scientific papers about seabird ecology and things like that. I also did a fair amount of wildlife rehabilitation. So I brought quite a long background to the the recent experience that I wrote about in this book, Alfie and Me. And some of it was introduced to you by your father, I think. He had, he had canaries in the home. My father's hobby when I was a very small boy was raising canaries, yes. So I could watch small birds raise impossibly small chicks from impossibly smaller eggs that they had laid in tiny nests in our kitchen in our living room sure it sounds like it was a very sweet um, experience but not as sweet as observing um, a bird in the wild and that's the, the amazing thing about you and alfie is that if 
if anyone was going to be able to develop a deep relationship with a wild owl, it was you. I was well primed. And then the other thing that happened that really made it possible was COVID shut down everything in, in that same year. And I had nothing else to do except watch Alfie the owl in my backyard, starting a new relationship with a wild mate and being out there for about five hours every day, watching owls be owls, which most people don't get to do. In a whole lifetime of my work and my bird watching, I've seen owls, but I never got to know an owl at all until this time. And uh, not a wild owl anyway, until this experience. And it was really eye-opening. So there's a really sweet silver lining uh, to, to COVID is that you, it did give you that, that opportunity. And, and I just wanted to also add that in addition to five hours a day, uh, that, that includes time at night because owls are nocturnal and you would be listening for them. And I guess while you were sleeping or half asleep or you would get up. Often that was, yes, often that was true. I'd, I'd be half asleep listening to them calling back and forth and semi keeping tabs on what was going on out there. But a lot of the rest of the time, I would get up a little before it got light and find them and watch them for an hour or two until they went to their day roosts. And similar thing in the evening, waiting for them to come out, watching what they were doing until it got really dark. And I got to see a lot of things that I wasn't expecting to see and had the opportunity to see because this one owl was very familiar with us and totally uninhibited by our presence. Yeah, it, it's amazing that you that Alfie started out as a wild owl, but then you discovered it injured on the ground as a baby chick and nursed it back to health. And then it, your big hope, which was realized, was that it would become a wild owl again. You know, that it started as wild and then it became a domesticated owl in a sense, but then it became wild again and it had a kind of a dual culture. It had a wild culture and a domesticated culture. Yeah. Domesticated is not exactly the right technical term, but certainly she was... Or tamed it anyway. She was tame. Yeah. That is really the right word for it. And our intention was to almost immediately let her rewild, but then she had a developmental delay, probably because she nearly died when she was a very tiny chick and she was found near death on somebody's lawn. And I think that experience, maybe the dehydration or the near starvation or something, messed up her flight feather growth. Her wing feathers did not come in properly at the right time. And that caused me to do an un unplanned, what I'd call protective custody. We had to keep her through a winter, first making sure that, in fact, her feathers were going to come in properly. But then I was afraid to let her fly off just as winter was setting in and there was very little food out there. And she had, you know, no experience as a hunter at that point. So we kept her until following year, I started to get her in, in shape for release and a free flying life. Worrying all the time, that would bring a lot of danger with it, but there was really no other opportunity, no other choice. It was either the life she was born to live, and that was the only option that I really entertained. So you tamed her, but she also tamed you in a sense. I mean, she brought you into her world. You might say that I 
her experience with me tamed her. My my experience with her wilded me a little bit. Or maybe another way to put it is that some writers personify animals, speak of them as if they're human. But in your book, I, I almost feel like that uh, Alfie is creatureifying you in the best possible sense. Yeah, I think that's a little bit true. And I felt like she was a portal through which I saw much more about the rest of the living world than I knew before, which was surprising to me because I already was very well oriented toward other creatures. I had spent lots and lots of time with other creatures and studying them. And yet I, I watched these owls and how relational they are, how relational she was with me, how she was with her wild mate, with her own youngsters, these relationships developed slowly with her wild mate. There was nothing stereotypical about it. At first she was mistrusting and then they got to be much more comfortable with one another. And he started bringing her gifts of food, which is the normal thing uh, for them as well as for us, I guess you could say. And she did not accept them at first, and then she did some of the time, and then she did all of the time, and then she started to eagerly look forward to his appearance out of the woods in the early evening. And all of that subtlety and all of that nuance is not what I was expecting, oddly enough. And that made me wonder, why are we so disconnected from the world when that world is here all the time? But as you say, it, it, it took COVID in a sense to give you the time to be totally patient with the unfolding of this process. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have, I wouldn't have known, I would have, it would have been impossible for me to notice most of these things if I was gone, as, as I would have been if that was a normal year. I had a lot of travel on my calendar. I had all kinds of stuff on the calendar that would have kept me away but I was very present and that made a huge difference. So in your book, you go back and forth between your experiences with Alfie and what the latest development in a sense with her, with philosophical reflections about the relationship between humans and, and the natural world. So early in the book, you ask, why do we happen to have a strained relationship with the natural world? And other cultures throughout time and across the globe have, have seen things differently. That's what I started to look into was, is this disconnect just a limitation of the human mind or is it something that we are taught? And to check that out, I asked what were other cultures taught throughout the centuries? And what I found was that basically all the other cultures, the big cultural realms, in which I mean indigenous peoples, the South Asian Dharmic religions, the East Asian philosophies, they all saw the world as a, a place full of relationships. They all saw humans in a network of relatedness to the family of life. They saw the world as sacred. They saw other living things as having souls and being equivalently valuable in the world and the human place in the world to maintain and not upset the balances that keep the world together. But in the West, 
a totally different, totally outlying idea took hold, which was that only humans matter in the world, that rather than the wholeness of the world, there is a duality between the ideal and the real, that we can contemplate the ideal with our minds, and so we should only focus on this ideal realm, which was hypothesized by Plato to exist, but outside of space and time. And that he said that only humans have souls and that our souls are yearning to get back to that ideal place when we die. And that the, the world is not a nice place. It's full of suffering. It's a profane place. And then Aristotle created a hierarchy that put humans at the top and everything else really didn't matter much, didn't have much value, except it was here to serve our desires. And this became basically the basis of Western thought and the Western religions. Matter of faith that only humans matter in the world. And I think that this has been the founding idea of Western thought and its worst idea and responsible for most of the destruction that we blithely engage in without really putting much value on the consequences of our actions or the coming generations. You, you write that the great blindness of the West is to grope the world as inventory. The great wisdom of the indigenous mind is to understand the world as relationships. Yes, I think that is really the big difference there. Yeah, we just see the world as inventory. Basically, raw material for people is the only reason the world is here, according to that view. So I would imagine as an, an ecologist, long before you met Alfie, that you would feel some alienation from Western culture and values, not all of it, but the aspects that you've just been talking about. And it's a kind of heartbreaking aspect to it. And I, I just wonder how you keep going. How do you keep your hope going? Well, it, that's maybe three different kinds of observations, but uh, I will, I guess I will say yes. And how do I keep my hope going? When I was in high school, the first Earth Day happened when I was 15 years old. We were in the thick of lots of environmental problems, very dirty air, rivers catching fire, terrible pesticides and chemicals that were causing many birds to disappear. This is how I grew up. And some birds that I had read about and never seen that seemed really fantastic, like bald eagles and ospreys and peregrine falcons, they were well on the way to extinction by the time I was in high school. And in fact, many people assumed that there was nothing that could be done and that they would go extinct. You couldn't see them, they were so rare. They were mostly gone from the entire region that I live in, the Northeast US. But then a few people turned all of that around. They managed to use the courts to get DDT and some of the other terrible pesticides banned. Other people 
created the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. And for those problems in the United States, there has been a tremendous turnaround. So these birds that I despaired that I would never see, they are really pretty common right now. The, the ospreys are where I live, they are extremely common and it's just fantastic to see them all the time. Bald eagles are no longer very rare. Peregrine falcons are no longer very rare. Most of these things have come off the endangered species list because the Endangered Species Act did its job. And so what we know is we know many of the things that could be done. And we know that when people do the right things, the resilience of the living world kicks in. And all of that gives me a lot of hope. And the other thing is that I don't feel like I can justify indulging in any sort of personal despair because I live a very privileged life. I have a lot of options. I have the ability to try to work on these things and contribute a little bit toward orienting people and ideas in, in, a, in maybe a better direction. And that's what I should be doing. I've also been many places in the world where I've seen a lot of people who have no options and are really stuck in terrible circumstances. And when things get really bad for me, I can go have a glass of wine or go get some ice cream. I can't really, as I said, I can't justify wallowing in any kind of woe is me sort of feeling about how terrible things are when I have the great privilege of trying to help create some of the solutions. And I have done a fair amount of that. When I worked on fisheries issues, the depletion of our oceans, we managed to create and get Congress to pass a thing called the Sustainable Fisheries Act. And there are millions more fish in coastal U.S. waters now than there were in the 1990s. That's my answer to how do I stay hopeful? It is, a lot of these things are, in fact, heartbreaking. They are. And it can be depressing at times. But I don't really feel like there's any reasonable option for me other than to continue to try to do my best work. I think it's helpful to hear that not everything is going in a negative direction, that sometimes things get turned around. I know the ozone hole was addressed successfully, for instance. Yes, that's a very good one. That's a very important point. If you don't mind, I'd like to uh, model this interview after your book in the sense that we can go back and forth between talking about Alfie and talking about these philosophical ideas. And so the next thing I wanted to ask you about Alfie is that your adoption of her meant not just a relationship with you and, and your wife, Patricia, but also with your dogs, Chula, Jude, and later a new dog, Katie. And it's wonderful and amazing how you created such trust and safety that you could trust your, that your dogs wouldn't try to attack Alfie, and also Alfie could be relaxed around them. It's really almost like the biblical lion, the lamb lying down with the lion. <laughs> we have created quite the peaceable kingdom here, I have to say, and it's really a beautiful thing. When Katie came in, we got her as an eight-month-old puppy that somebody just could not handle her energy and gave her to us. It took about three months for her to integrate into the peacefulness of how we all operate and cooperate around here. But the other dogs were raised around small birds and chickens and baby chickens. And I found it remarkably easy 
to get them to be completely non-aggressive to small birds to the point where they just, you know, they're over it. Like the chickens are completely beside the point to them. And and we all operate that way. A very interesting aspect of that is that Alfie the owl was raised around two of our dogs. And then Katie came in a little bit later. She was, to her, the dogs were just matter of fact. But when a friend of ours came with her dog, a strange dog, Alfie completely freaked out. She was terrified of that dog. That's how much recognition and individual recognition she felt. And this is part of her relationality is that she knows who she's with. She knows us as individuals and that, and knowing who you're with is what makes us individuals. And, um, we could easily see that with her. And it took her quite a while with Katie. When Katie was new, Alfie was very uncomfortable with the sight of her. And it took a few months, I would say, for all of that to work itself out. Yeah, it really speaks to Alfie's intelligence that we really should not call anybody a bird brain when, they, when we're trying to disparage them. Bird brains, as small as they are. No, that's just a, that's obviously a dopey expression. And it's clear that pets really inspire you. You wrote, I've seen many pets pass. It actually gets a little harder each time. Pets become family because in some ways uh, they are a bit better than us. More peaceful, less manipulative, more forgiving, more eager to reconcile and smooth things over and move on. They show us how to be better than we are. It seems that way to me. Humans are, shall we say, amazing and problematic creatures. (laughs) Yes, we are amazing. We are problematic. We're a little too much of a good thing, I think. I think so, too. I remember some years ago seeing a New Yorker cartoon, and it showed two planets. One was a larger doctor planet that had the shiny disc on its forehead and looking down at the Earth. And the Earth is looking up at the doctor, awaiting the diagnosis. And the doctor planet says, I'm afraid you have humans. (laughs) That's a good one. In terms of the relationship to to pets versus a a wild creature, you you wrote this, a grim arithmetic backs the fact that most creatures raise many young, yet adult numbers don't fluctuate much from generation to generation. A breeding pair of screech owls might manage to raise three young each every year, but the territory can support only one pair of adults. Outside their territory, all the good habitat is usually occupied. The young must look for holes left by recent fatalities. Some may drift and lurk. Until an opportunity opens up, they might remain unable to secure their own territory, their own mate, a stake in the future. Most of the rest cannot survive. Could I really subject Alfie to those harsh odds? Yeah, that was on my mind quite a lot. But the answer really was, I didn't make the world the way it is. And I also could not subject her to having no life, no stake in the future, just living in a coop. That was not an option. And life is dangerous. Life has risks, more so for a screech owl than for somebody like you or me. But nonetheless, there was really, there was no other option than to let her face that. And luckily it all worked out when she has survived. Clearly you did not want her to become a pet, even though you tamed her. That's different than making her into a pet. And 
as I mentioned before, she had sort of two worlds, the, the world of being a tamed animal and also the world of being a, a wild animal. And you had a, the privilege of having a window into the wild animal part of her. Right, absolutely. In a way, we, in a real way, we never tamed her. She, she was never wild or fearful because by the time she opened her eyes, we were there. So we were just always part of her world and she was, she never had any fear of us. So it, so she was tame, but she didn't go through a process of being tamed because she was never wild or fearful. I guess it's what a human being raised by wolves that they trust the wolf entirely. Yeah. It's also like a human being raised by humans. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. One of the things you point to in the, your philosophical reflections is about the first creation story in the book of Genesis, where it says where humans, after being created, male and female, are ex exhorted to fill the earth and subdue it. And that is one of the sources of, in the Abrahamic traditions, of being a kind of a self-centered, as you mentioned earlier, that somehow the world was made for us rather than with us in it. Yeah, I think that is a source of that valuation and that story and that ethic is a source of a lot of our disconnect and alienation, self-alienation from the world, to see the world that way. Yeah, other cultures did not see the world that way and did not teach that that's our relationship to the world. They taught that the world is filled with our relations, that we live in a network of relationships that extend through the entire cosmos, and that taking care of and respecting the world and the life in it is what we're supposed to do. That's different, very different. Yeah, and you also mentioned about how in Plato and also in Christianity that there's these two worlds as the physical world and the spiritual world, and the spiritual world is, in those views, are much, much better than the physical. And of course, in other cultures, indigenous cultures also have a spirit world, but it's not seen as better, I guess. It's seen as just a, a kind of a parallel in a sense. It's not really even seen as different, that the, the indigenous view, as best I understand it, is that the world is material and spiritual together at the same time. And you could say that, in a sense, physics would say the same thing by saying that the world has matter and energy that are in constant interaction. It's the physicist's idea of energy is not the same as an indigenous person or a religious person's idea of spirit. But if you think of spirit as a non-material part of the world, and then there's a material part of the world, and they're all together at the same time, then that's a lot closer to what the indigenous view is, that it's all together in the world at the same time. It's all sacred. There's not this duality. There is not a split between them. Although I think my understanding of indigenous shamans is that they'll take an hallucinogen and go into a trance and repair something in the spiritual parallel world and th then come back. And then that has an effect, a positive effect and, uh, to heal somebody, for instance. 
that's something I can't address because I really don't know. I would say, I probably would say I don't know really much of anything about shamanistic practices and how they might vary among different indigenous groups. One thing I was impressed in, uh, by in your book is your relationship to science. That's clearly you're, among other things, a scientist, but you're a scientist with certain values that science doesn't bring. Science, Western science, in any case, doesn't seem to bring values one way or the other. It's a question of how, how the science is used. And in, in your approach to science, you wanted to it's going to enlighten both yourself and others to, to appreciate the, the natural world. Yeah, science is an attempt to find out what's really going on in nature and the universe. Once you know what's really going on, you still have the question of how would how should we conduct ourselves? What is a good way to be in the world? If you think that a good way to be in the world is to conduct yourself so that the world can continue, you you have a certain set of answers. And if you think that you don't care if the world continues, that brings another set of answers. I think the main problem that we get in is with people who don't understand or care about the reality of nature and the reality of the universe, but have been taught a story in which the world has no value. I'm just wondering if you've come across people who have a kind of in-between stance, not not your stance, but also not the exploitational stance, but someone who maybe doesn't think too deeply about these things, but appreciates nature when they're in it, but is not necessarily averse to uh, exploiting nature when they're when that's convenient as well. I come across a lot of people who see the whole world mostly as scenery and they like natural scenery. And we are, I, I would say anybody you're likely to be speaking with in, in our culture, we're all stuck being part of all of these problems because we don't really have a lot of viable alternatives. And for instance, the lobbying by oil companies has made it impossible for us to have a lower impact lifestyle. And we're constantly bombarded with ads and other social signals that are telling us we, we are inadequate in different ways, or we need this, or we need that. And we are educated to be consumers, and we're called consumers. We're not called citizens, we're not called human beings. We're not called empathic creatures. We're called consumers. When we get our high school diploma, we're, we're our, or our college diploma, we are considered to be educated. They tell us, here's your diploma. Congratulations, you've graduated. We don't know where our food comes from, where our energy is made or how it gets to us, where any of the materials of our existence come from, where our waste goes. We don't know anything about what lives around us. We don't understand anything about our lives. What we do know at that point is how to buy things and how to want things. And we've been indoctrinated into a cult of consumerism. Consumerism tells us to want things and buy things and not care about any of the consequences, not know about any of the consequences. 
that's our education. So we are taught to be disconnected from the world. So what, in your experience, has helped people to get more connected? Going, being raised with that story by, by people who are trying to show you connections in the world and create empathy and create a sense of community and caring for others. But this is all opposed by all of the other messages that we get and by this fairly dysfunctional education that we get. That's the problem is one of scale in a sense that the messages that result in not caring about the destructions that create our lifestyle are so disproportionate to messages of empathy or caring about nature, enjoying nature, feeling any kind of sense of propriety or stewardship. Those are minuscule messages in our society. So getting back to, to Alfie, you adopted her into your family and all of her prey, her, her, the bugs, the rodents, even birds, uh, were, were not. And you, you write, of course, whatever my fear of Cooper's hawks, owls themselves hunt the food they and their babies need. It can be difficult to contemplate them as killers. Yet on the planet where plants make and animals take, this fraud and awful give and get has worked through the ages, creating the quickened beauties we see. For that matter, it has created us. Our way is no improvement over the talon and the beak, to say the least. Our rapaciousness has no competition. We uniquely deplete the world. Truth is, we have become an existential danger to planetary life on par with the last major asteroid strike. Other creatures take what their circumstances compel, seeking what they need. We alone seek more than needed, pardoning our impulse to take what we want, whatever the cost inflicted on peaceful roosts everywhere. So I think it's beautiful writing, and it really speaks to what we've been talking about. And, and it also speaks to the what it means to adopt a predator. You, you, you don't have that much empathy for what she's catching for her herself and, and her eventually her kids. I do and I don't. It's not, it's not that I don't care, um, and it's not that I don't think about it. It's just that it's demonstrated itself despite certain awful aspects of it it has demonstrated itself to work for hundreds of millions of years our way of living has demonstrated its destructiveness over just the last few centuries since you can just go back a couple of hundred years since the industrial revolution for instance when all of this stuff really accelerated it can't continue like this. We cannot continue having record-breaking temperatures and yellow skies filled with smoke. That that cannot continue. It will we we will either fix it or it will destroy us. We will destroy ourselves or we will fix it. Those are the two choices that we have. Yeah, I, I think when I was reading your book, I was thinking that part of the reason for human success is that we did not want to be as vulnerable as your the paragraph I just read would portend for people. Until pretty recently, people died at very young ages from diseases or from starvation 
We didn't live in comfortable shelters. It's really very recent that civilization gave us what seems like a much safer and more comfortable life. And that takes on a life of its own. It's hard to pass on that when the alternatives is to be very much more vulnerable. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we're way more comfortable. On the other hand, we're in way more danger. I don't quite see it that way. There were hunter-gatherer groups that fought to the death to maintain their way of life. They found a lot of meaning in how they lived. And this idea that their lives were all terrible is not borne out by what they had to say and what they showed about the value of their way of life. They found tremendous meaning in their way of life. It's arguable that in our maybe relative safety, and I think you're certainly right that life expectancy is extended now. We, first of all, we could have made a much better deal, which is we'll take the antibiotics, we'll take the safety, we'll take the longer life, and we will also limit our population and care for the world. That's a pretty easy equation that we passed on or refuse to this day. And the other thing is that these shortened, dangerous lives, we have nuclear bombs aimed at us at all times. We have wars erupting for absolutely no good reason in the 20th century alone. The most civilized people in the world killed about 150 million other civilized people, mostly on their own continent. So how big an improvement is all of this over being a hunter-gatherer who sees the world as a sacred place? It's just that I think we have a failure of imagination because we think that getting in our cars and sitting on our couches watching television is a big improvement, and I'm not sure that's true. So I, w I would imagine you wouldn't resonate to the phrase putting the genie back in the bottle, because you wouldn't see it as a genie at all. Which genie are you talking about? I guess modern technology being the genie. Modern technology is very much a, a genie that needs to be limited, because uh, it's not the technology. All technology serves the values that send. It's the fact that we don't value the world. We refuse to have any sense of care or conscience or limitations. And when I say we, I mean, you know, in the general thrust of society and modernity, there are millions of people who do have care and conscience, but they're not setting the big policies. The, the big policies are to let everything loose in the world. Pandora's box is just open or the genie or whatever metaphor you want. We, we do not exercise care and conscience or concern for the continuity of life, for the stabilization, for the stability of life-supporting systems and natural cycles. We just, we just want bigger, faster, more. That's the main policy of the world at present, is bigger, faster, more. So I'm wondering if we could shift gears and talk a little bit about Alfie becoming a mother. It was really one of the more wondrous 
developments uh, in your relationship with her. I think you were worried at first that she didn't really know how to mate. I was worried about everything, yes. Every, every step of the way, I was ridiculously worried. It was a little bit silly how much I worried, but I was so fond of her. And in that, especially in that year of COVID, which was so distressing and so many people were suffering so much in so many ways, I think it meant even more to me that we have a happy ending to all of this stuff and that things worked out well. But one of the things, yeah, she didn't really know how to mate effectively at first. She had no experience doing so. She did not a adopt the proper posture for a while. And then I, one night I saw her get it. And after she got it, she never went back to not getting it. Her eggs were all fertile. Her eggs all hatched. She incubated them totally normally. She switched gears to feeding the young ones, continued feeding them after they fledged for about two or three weeks, which is normal for that species. And it was just all very wonderful and just magical that I could watch all of this for, for hours a day at point blank range, knowing that Al Alfie was so comfortable with me being there that my presence was totally beside the point to her. I am a bird watcher, among other things. I've seen a, quite a few owls, but I never got to know a wild owl before, and I never got to just sit there watching them while they did their entire, the, the entire cycle of procreation. It was just fantastic. Really magical. And it, it did sound like you were just a little bit nervous about peering into her nest, that you were worried that if you did it while she was in the vicinity that you might object, even though she trusted you completely. Yeah, I was really worried that if I, I wanted that nest to be completely inviolate and feel totally secure. And I was afraid that if I put a ladder up there and climbed up there and she saw me doing that, that she might feel that it was no longer a secure place. But that turned out not to be a problem. And I realized that she would come out at dusk and go to the bird bath and I'd have about five minutes to go check on what was happening in the nest, which I did a few times. I, I saw that she had eggs. I saw that the eggs hatched. I saw the babies were growing well. And then their little heads started peeking out of the nest and they came out eventually, just all according to the way it can go when everything goes well. And I think it was Patricia who came up with the name for the children. And for some reason, it wasn't, they weren't individually named, right? It was a collective. Yeah. The first night when the first one came out, I gave it a little nickname, but immediately I realized I couldn't tell them apart. They all looked like little fluffy clouds. And I said that to Patricia. I said, I'd like to name them, but I can't tell them apart. She said, why don't we just give them all one collective name? We can call them the who. She just came up with that right off the top of her head. So I thought that was adorably cute and we called them the who yeah it, it's definitely an adorable name and the other thing i want to ask you about was your understanding of alfie's language this is really i think a remarkable thing that you describe that of course the birds some birds can imitate human speech but that's not what you're talking about but you were able to tell the difference between her calls and cries somewhat analogously to a, a parent parent of a human baby understanding the difference between baby's cries there's no no words yet but yet there is clear meaning. That's a good analogy. If you look at any field guide, it says that Eastern screech owls have two calls. 
But there's two things about that. One is that they have more than two calls. They have maybe five different calls. And the other is that what they mean by those calls can vary a lot depending on the context. She can, for instance, use the same call at a loud volume to mean, I'm here, where are you? I'm here, where are you? And she can be looking for her mate or sometimes me. If she's doing that, for instance, right at dawn and I happen to open the window and call back to her, she stops calling right away because she's gotten an answer to her question, where are you? The answer is, I'm here. And that's what she wants to know. She wants to know, are we all okay? Are we all together? And if so, I'm going to sleep. And then there are other calls that they use to just keep tabs on each other as they're moving around in the forest at night. I've never heard those calls before. I've never seen them described in any bird guide, but they were using them quite regularly. And then they have a special call of really bonded intimacy that she only utters during contact or from the nest itself. And it's a very soft, very low series of low sort of plaintive whistles, but they're not, whistles is almost the wrong word for them because they, they're they very soft and and low, as I said. And that's just a really intimate call that seems to indicate total trust and a sense of intimacy. Can you imitate any of her calls? I can. That one that I was talking about sounds a little bit like, see if you can hear this. There's one called a, a tremolo or a trill. Let me see if I can do that. I can't always do it. So wonderful. And then a call called a whinny. It sounds like a little horse. It's just like, more like a little horse whinnying than that sounds. But anyway, those are th three of the calls. And we didn't mention yet about what Alfie looked like. She's a rather small owl for owls. Most people who don't know owls well think of much larger ones. Yeah, screech owls are small. She's only about five inches from the branch she's sitting on to the top of her head. So plus a little extra for the tail. Yeah. So you, you make it uh, clear in your book that you had some jealousy feelings when she ma made it. I mean, you were happy for her, of course, <laughs> but you, as her human dad, <laughs> you had to let her go. Yeah, that's true. You know, as ridiculous as that sounds, <laughs> I enjoyed the whole thing so much that I didn't want it to end. And incredibly, it has not ended. She's five years old. She's still frequently around our backyard. We still see her frequently. The last time I saw her was just last night. Amazing. Because the, the other goodbye that you had to make was the empty nest. So it was her empty nest and also your empty nest. Yes, that's true too. Yeah. It got a little, it got a little quiet, got like very quiet when the young ones wandered off and then Alfie and her mate both got very scarce for a few weeks. I didn't see the mate again. After the young ones wandered off, I didn't see the mate again until late the following winter. 
So I didn't see him for months and I didn't see her for a few weeks or I barely saw her for a few weeks. And that's a pattern that has repeated itself several times now. Oh, okay. So you've gotten to know more and more babies. 10, a total of 10. Yeah, she's raised a total of 10 youngsters. Yep. I see. Well, muscle tough to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Mm-hmm. Now, are, are you able to distinguish? I know it's, it sounds like you were able to distinguish Alfie from any other screech owl, but can you distinguish her mate? You've, you've named plus one. If you, if you see him elsewhere or, or any of the babies, if you see them, let's say, a mile away? Oh, no, not at all. First of all, I've never seen them anywhere except in my backyard, and I distinguish her mainly by her behavior toward me. I see. Very interestingly, her mate plus one, who is in the book, he was very tolerant of our presence. He was never tame, but if we were about 30 feet away, he would just go about whatever he felt like going about without being inhibited by our presence. He came back a second year. He did not return in the third year. And in the fourth year, which was just this past summer, she had a new mate who seemed to be a young male who had wandered into a territory that gave him an opening, his big shot at life. And he, his personality was very different. Plus one was uh, only on one occasion, right after the young ones that first year came out of the box, there was one occasion where he flew across the yard directly over me with a little threatening, just clacked his beak a couple of times. The new one was constantly trying to drive me away from the vicinity of the nest box and hit me really hard in the side of the head one night when I was looking for the young ones after they came out and they were spending their time in the woods behind our house. So his personality was that he he did not like me anywhere nearby and he was very aggressive and assertive about it. And that was very different. And that's another thing about all these creatures. We think they're all the same. We think one owl is the same as the other or one male is the same as the other. And they all have different personalities that we never really get a chance to see. So it sounds like you were able to partially tame plus one, or maybe he was, for whatever personality reason, willing to do that. I think the technical term would be he he was habituated. He was just, he seemed to be taking some cues from her that if she wasn't afraid of us, we were probably not dangerous. And whereas with Alfie, we could walk right up to her or she might land right next to us. With him, as I said, if we were 20 or 30 feet away, he would just do his thing. But he never wanted us to be right near him. And um, he was never what I would call tame. He was just what I would call maybe tolerant. And Alfie would actually land on your hand. Yes, sometimes. I don't quite remember this, but a friend of mine says that he was here talking to me one night and we were sitting on the deck and he looked away for a moment. When he looked back, Alfie was on my shoulder. I don't, I don't quite remember that incident, but he does remember that very, very well. Yeah. And in your book, you really marvel at the silent flight that owls and Alfie in particular are capable of. They're just 
suddenly appear and disappear with no auditory warning whatsoever. No, their flight is startlingly silent because if they fly right across your field of vision, right in front of your face, you can't hear anything. And when her new mate hit me in the side of the head, I didn't, I had no, no inkling that he was coming. He just suddenly struck me. It was very startling. That really rattled me, I have to say. Yeah, it's but, fortunate they're small birds. Or it's fortunate that they're, so I thought that immediately at the time. It was a good thing that these are small owls. Otherwise, that could have not ended well at all for me. Speaking of ending well, do you suspect that Plus One has met his, his maker? He, he would have come back if he was alive, yeah. Yeah, because they mate for life, don't they? Yeah, and once they find a territory and a mate and they've raised young, they're not going to go yeah. anywhere. There's nothing yeah. better anywhere else than having a, a, a good territory and raising young ones. I, I wonder if owls are capable of, of grieving. She called and called and called. And there's a writer named Barbara J. King who has written about grief in non-humans. And... She has a very, I think, a very good defining way of saying whether you can tell if another animal is grieving, and that is if, if they are expending energy looking for a lost one and going off their routine, like off their appetite or leaving their territory for a time or things like that, which other animals do. And maybe not all the time and maybe, and certainly not all other animals, but yeah, there seems to be, what is grief for us? Grief is we're really missing somebody that we loved or even a, a, or even a non-human like a dog that, that was important to us. And we just, we are really missing them. That's what grief is. And I think that some of these other animals have an experience that is either either identical or very similar to that. So in your book, you don't talk about death very much, but you talk a little bit and you write, we think that death is a mystery, but the mystery is life. And look at us out of the vast non-living universe for some brief spark and against all odds, we live. That succession of sparks has been sufficient to let life persist, to proliferate, to sense, to wonder, to love. The most important question is not what will happen after death, but what will happen after birth. Yeah, I think that is the most important question. I have tried to make the most of my life and my time here. That seems to make the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and making relationships with uh, people, with animals, with birds, just there's a kind of richness that you've uh, created. The meaning of life is in the relationships that we have. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the meaning that we create in life. I think this is probably a good place to end. Thank you so much for joining us on Delving In. Carl Safina, a world-renowned ecologist and conservationist, award-winning writer and professor, political activist and visionary, founding president of the not-for-profit Safina Center and author most recently of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Thank you so much, Carl. Stuart, thank you very much for having me. It's really been very pleasurable speaking with you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air 
and to continue to grow in cyberspace.